Okay, well, we're about to get into the heart of the matter, the doctrine of right, <laughs> where it all comes from. Um, so, Alice Valla is a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews. She's finishing her thesis on the concept of happiness in Kant's moral and political philosophy. And today is going to talk about provisional acquisition as true acquisition. Um, thank you very much for this invitation. This is for me a great opportunity and I have learned a lot from the papers. So there will be lots of new references and footnotes in the revised version of this paper. I will show my newly acquired knowledge. <laughs> Now, the paper is very long, as I have noticed, so what I will do now, I will just skim through the main arguments of the paper um, to give a notion um, to those who haven't read it and to remind those who have. Um, so what is the paper all about? Um, I engage with the alleged contradiction of Kant's criticism of colonialism and some essential aspects of his theory of right. What are those claims uh, of the theory of right? Um, the claim that in the state of nature there is only physical possession, so this seems to um, give us the view that the stronger wins, whoever, whoever can get the object or the piece of land, um, is, is entitled to do so in the state of nature. And the second claim uh, is formulated under the postulate of public um, right, which says that we are authorized to coerce everyone to join us um, uh, in the civil condition. So whoever is in the state of nature wrongs me, even if he's not uh, concretely harming me, doing anything particularly to harm me, his mere condition um, outside a condition of right is a wrong. And that authorizes me. <clears throat> now, I have a look in order to explain how these um, contradictions are actually not contradictions. I have a look at Kant's uh, criticism of uh, colonialist practice. And then I show how his account of provisional ac acquisition uh, is central um, to solving our problem and also shapes his account of cosmopolitan right. So in the first session, I start talking about the right to visit, which is actually less than a right to visit. Um, I give an account of different interpretations of the content of this right. I stick to the broad interpretation of Thakir as um, a broad communicative right. But I conclude that the right to visit uh, the object of cosmopolitan right is even less than a right to tourism. So people have argued that cosmopolitan right is unsatisfactory, it's only a right to tourism, it's actually even less than this. Um, you're not allowed to visit, uh, you are allowed to offer your person for interaction, and the host country has the right to decline it under certain circumstances. There are circumstances where Kant claims that you have a right to entry. And this is the case of involuntary um, interactions where you, you need to be uh, in a safe haven, for instance, um, because you're being persecuted or because, um, as he mentions in the preparation works, 
for the doctrine of right, you are a victim of a shipwreck uh, or similar. Now, um, so I give, I try to give an analysis why cosmopolitan right is so minimal. Why do we have to restrict cosmopolitan right to this right to offer oneself without a claim to entry? Many commentators have stressed, well, Kant is concerned about colonialism. This is not wrong, but this seems to render the whole framework pretty much ad hoc. I want to claim here that there are deep philosophical reasons for that restriction, and this is based in his theory of property in the state of nature. So my explanation for that, I argue that Kant wants to establish original rights. Um, what would be the original right as cos at, at the cosmopolitan level? And what is our original right? Those are rights which do not presuppose any legal deed or acts for their validity. Um, why is that so important? Uh, the point of that original right, of that state of cosmopolitan right, is to provide a basis for a future cosmopolitan constitution. So you are starting from scrap. Okay, there are no agreements. Um, there are no contracts, uh, so we have to see what would be uh, an original right there from the perspective of natural law. So it's only the right to offer oneself for interaction, and why? So before I engage in this, in this um, discussion, I comment the three conditions of right which I think are uh, essential for understanding Kant's theory of right. So he mentions that he only gives definitions three times in the whole doctrine of right. And, they, um, and these are the three legis, um, lex justi, lex juridica, and lex justitiae distributive. Um, and I argue in the paper following Bird and Hiruska, um, these are different modalities of right. And this is the way we have to follow from the pure concept of right, the right in the idea, through uh, the state of nature, okay, the uh, several stages of the sta uh, uh, state of nature, until the civil condition, where we have uh, a condition of distributive justice. So what are these three legis? Uh, we will explain that, and then afterwards it will become, become clear why I am um, stressing these uh, distinctions. So the lex justi um, is the pure a priori conception of right. It includes all original rights. It includes all the axioms, principles, and assumptions we need to make in order to see something out there in the world as being legally relevant. So these are the, 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 the system of assumptions we need to have to start with. Um, then after that we have Lex Juridica. What is the Lex Juridica? We look at the world. We have concrete people interacting with each other and their particular relations will generate specific rights. So we have um, 
property rights, uh, rights to objects. We have relations of status to certain people, for instance, to our spouses and to our children. We have agreements and contracts that we only have with certain persons, okay, because we did certain deeds, because we made promises, because we made contracts. And this does not extend, extend to the whole of humanity. So these are very specific rights arising from concrete relations of individuals. So the idea is that this is an application of the lex justi, okay? That you have deeds there, uh, acts, that you need to see as being legally, legally relevant. And this presupposes the a priori pure conception of right. And then after that, we have the lex justitia distributiva, which presupposes actually these acquired rights from the lex juridica, okay, from the all these acquired uh, rights from the, the state of nature. But because you have a unified um, system of justice, because you have public right, okay, this framework is, allowed, uh, is able to impart necessity to these rights. So you have first the possibility of rights, Lex Justi, the reality of rights with Lex Juridica, and then the necessity of rights um, because of the public character of these institutions and, of course, the coercive power that they have. So it imparts necessity. So this is the, the way we have to go through according um, to Kant. Now, one fundamental distinction that pervades this whole framework, these modalities of right, is the distinction between original and acquired rights. So, original rights are, as to say, the normative basis for all further acquired rights. They are seen as legal because they derive their normativity from these more fundamental rights. Um, so, what is the main thesis here? Uh, what is the, the central thesis um, behind um, Kant's criticism of colonialism. This is the following idea. That the notion of original common possession of the earth, I did not mention that, but um, I'll mention that now, the right to visit, cosmopolitan right, is rooted in this original common possession of the earth. This idea that, which I will specify, the earth belongs to us, but for Kant is in a very specific sense, and we specify that soon. This is an original right, a right to occupy space. This original common possession of the earth does not entitle the access to a particular piece of land after division or acquisition has already taken place. Why is that? So you have in the state of nature um, an original right uh, to occupy space, and in fact, you can take possession of a piece of land as long as it is occupied. But what Kant's saying here, that once occupation has taken place, this will impose a limitation on your original right. Why is that? In the paper, I briefly reconstruct Kant's account of property rights in the state of nature as a preparation 
for the explanation of uh, his account of regional acquisition. So I will briefly um, reconstruct um, his account of property rights. Um, so he starts with the idea that we have an innate right to freedom, um, but what is not included in this right to freedom, but something that we need to accept, is the possibility of owning external objects. What is the argument for that? Why do we need to assume the possibility of owning uh, objects? We want property to be covered by right. Okay, we need to show that the fact that we have a capacity, that we use objects is legally relevant. And his argument uh, is a kind of black and white argument. He says, look, the inner right or the, principle, the pure principle of right can give us no clue whether we are allowed or not to make use of objects. It's just something that extrapolates the scope of the principle. The principle has to do with the mere formal relations between agents. Um, it does not cover our relation or claims to an object outside us. I said, but look, as a matter of fact, uh, we can make use of objects. Uh, so what happens if we say we cannot use objects? Fine from the perspective of the pure principle of right, but we cannot will that. Kant gives here an argument similar to the contradiction in, in the will argument of the groundwork. We cannot will objects to be res nullius because we want to use objects for our purposes. So for this reason, we must assume, this is a postulate, that we are able to own objects. We accepted that. From this, he goes on to derive lots of assumptions that we have to accept once we are committed to the claim that it is possible to own objects, that it's legally possible to own objects. So what follows for that? If we accept the possibility of owning objects, we must also assume intellectual possession, okay? The possibility of owning an object which will be regarded as mine even if I'm not holding it, okay? Why is that? Because the concept of an object of choice, okay? The reason for, for us to bother about owning objects is because we want to use them as objects of our choice. Um, and the concept of an object of choice presupposes the idea that I can use it in whichever way I see fit. Why? This is a funny argument, a dodgy argument. Um, if intellectual possession, then exclusive possession. And Kant thinks that Unless an object is exclusively mine, I would be subjected to the, per to the choice of other agents. So anyone could come and claim my pen. And this would un undermine the very rationality for uh, admitting the possibility of owning objects of choice. So we want to protect this ability of using an object of choice. And this requires assuming that objects are exclusive. If so, 
we still need to assume that we are authorized to keep objects for exclusive use because this is a clearly um, seems clearly unrightful that I should limit the liberty of others of using uh, my book um, by saying that no this book is mine and even if I don't want to use it I have the right to keep it in my cellar forever but you don't have the right to use it so I need an authorization for this and Kant introduces here the notion of a lex permissiva. So we need to assume all these things in order to accept, um, in order to be able to have property of objects. And the other side of this lex permissiva, if we, have the if we are authorized to keep objects, then we must also have a duty to respect this property of other people, even though they are unilateral acts of acquisition. Okay? These are individuals going there and grabbing things. Um, so you don't have um, the notion of a united will um, that would legitimize, that would give it a, a public character. It's really um, something private. Individuals doing that privately. But we need to assume that this is rightful. So we have here the postulate of private law. Now, how does this story that I've told here, I hope it was clear, it's a complicated story. How does it apply to original acquisition of the land? So, Kant follows here parallel argumentation, it's very similar. Um, original acquisition is based on the right I was talking before, the original right to be somewhere, okay? As physical beings, we need to, be, we need to occupy space, we need to be somewhere. But this right to be somewhere does not mean that we have a right to be in a specific place. It's only some place. Okay? Um, since we must be somewhere on the earth, and the surface of the earth is connected, as is spherical, um, we must conceive ourselves as being united. So interaction is inevitable, and um, we can say that we have a common possession of the Earth because we are in this uh, closed sphere. But this does not mean that it is a collective conception of uh, common possession, but we must take individuals distributively. Why I'm saying that? Because there was a tradition that Kant addresses who had this idea of a common possession of the Earth, Either everyone had everything or no one had anything. And uh, Kant thinks that this is not uh, an original state. It's only a derived, can only be a derived state. But now how do we, how can we acquire land from a legal um, perspective? What makes unilateral acts, people going and saying, this is my land, what makes this rightful? Um, as I said before, only the a priori general will can legitimate acts of acquisition. Okay? And this is only possible in the civil condition. But now we are in the state of nature. We don't have the public institutions who are going to make the distribution for us. How should we proceed? We only have the principle of first possession, which is Whoever arrived first has it. 
um, go for it. So we have to stick to this principle. Um, why do we need to see this principle as being rightful? Kant says, well, we need, this is the argument pretty much, we need to start the, pro the process of implementation of right. We need to start in the state of nature. So there is no other way of starting than prima occupatio. And the second reason for that is that only individuals can divide the land uh, because only individuals are right holders. So, and on the other hand, the civil condition presupposes that these rights are already there. The civil con condition does not create these rights. It incorporate, incorporates the rights in the state of nature and gives necessity to them. So we are authorized to divide the land through um, unilateral acts of acquisition. And here's Kant's argument for the provisional um, rightful status of this acquisition in the state of nature. He argues that it is rightful in expectation, in the avatum of the civil constitution. So this is a necessary uh, condition for the later establishment of the civil condition. This is why we need to see this provisional acquisition as true acquisition, as I say in the title of the paper. Now we have other problems, um, which I will just skim through. Someone um, mentioned before, how do we know the extent of provisional acquisition? The need to determine the extent of acquisition is also a strong reason for entering the civil condition. Only a condition of public right can legally determine this extent. But on the other hand, Kant already argues that there are means in the state of nature for um, determining the extent of provisional acquisition. And Kant argues that we must take into consideration the people's specific modes of life. So the way they um, engage with the land for their own survival, their own uh, their specific ways of life, and thereby rejects uh, the agrarian specification of land as the only possible sign of occupation. Okay, so he's rejecting, rejecting law. So I conclude the paper by making a parallel between Kant's uh, criticism of colonialism and his rejection of a right to revolution. So the idea there is that you, um, you would be proceeding in jumps. You would be uh, introduce, introducing a state of injustice, um, allegedly uh, justified by the promotion of right afterwards. But this would break, I argue, the normative continuity between the condition of lex justi through lex juridica to the civil condition. So this is it. Thank you very much, and I hope it was clear. Thank you.